0: Hello, it's Basher. This week we're doing something quite different because for the last few months I've been working on an investigation. At Tortoise, I also work as an editor as well as doing this weekly podcast and I'm handing over today to journalist Louise Tickle and we're launching a new four-part series called Hidden Homicides. It's a fascinating, harrowing and really important set of stories about domestic abuse and women whose deaths might be being missed. We're publishing all four episodes today. So stay with us as we tell you about a national scandal hidden from view.
1: Today's date is the 14th of October, 2016. Um, The time, according to my watch, is ten past past eleven. We're in an interview room in Torquay Police Station uh, with obviously specially recorded rooms. Um, what's your full name? Catherine Jane Wilding OK um, What's your date of birth? 31st of 8th 1995
0: This is Katie She's 21 and she works in a local hairdressers in a seaside town in Devon and to me she looks so young She's got fading purple dip-dye hair and today she's pulling on her sleeves nervously She's nervous because what you're listening to is her talking to the police properly for the first time about her boyfriend. A man who's 12 years older than her, called Mitchell Richardson. And this is a huge step for Katie. She's just been seriously assaulted by Mitchell Richardson. And everyone knew that Katie was at extremely high risk from his abusive behaviour. He'd made death threats to Katie before and to her mum. They were vicious, and they were detailed, and they were scary. So why, when Katie and Mitchell Richardson were found dead in his flat, did the police not seriously investigate her death as a potential homicide? I
2: firmly believe, and always have done from the moment the police knocked on my door, that Mitchell planned her death. The coroner didn't find that. I'm trying to be honest. But we firmly believe the police didn't do their job properly.
0: Well, to answer this question... I'm going to need to take you on a pretty dark journey through the British justice system. And I'm going to need to introduce you to other victims too, and their families. Their stories tell us that something is going badly wrong in how we police domestic abuse. I'm Louise Tickle, and you're listening to Hidden Homicides, a podcast series from Tortoise Media. In this series, I'm going to investigate three remarkable cases about women who may have been killed, but never counted. In a fourth case, I expose how failings in the system leave one family's questions unanswered forever. And I do need to warn you, this episode and the whole series is going to detail really distressing cases of violence, coercion and controlling behaviour against women. Some of it is very difficult to hear, and so listener discretion is advised. But it's important that we really go into this, even when it's difficult to read and even when it's difficult to listen to because this is a problem that's far bigger than anyone realises. I've been reporting on domestic abuse for over a decade now. I've interviewed scores of victims and, in the very worst circumstances, they're bereaved families who are just broken. There are some moments I know I'll never forget. Six years ago, I sat in the kitchen of a woman called Jeanette Chambers while she shook herself almost off her chair with the trauma of telling me how her sister Christine and her two-year-old niece Shania had been killed by Christine's ex. That's Shania's dad. I just remember how on that day, Jeanette was trembling so hard she could hardly hold on to her cigarette as she told me how the police had known this man's abuse was escalating to dangerous levels. They had been called out loads of times. But somehow, somehow, Christine was never classified as high risk. And one night, her ex let himself into her house with a key he'd kept, and then he shot Christine and her daughter. Since then, I've written about how charges of domestic violence are frequently downgraded. And I've written about how courts impose just offensively short sentences, even when judges have the scope and every justification to impose longer terms. And now I've turned my attention to hidden homicides. I first heard about it last February. And from that point on, the idea of women dying unseen and uncounted has haunted me. I knew I had to find out the true scale of what is a hidden problem, and I had to find a way to shout about it. Tracy Lovell, Libby Squire. Every year, something called the Femicide Census releases a count of every woman in the UK who's known to have been killed by a man.
2: Giselle Marriman Herrera.
0: It names them too, and the MP Jess Phillips reads them out name by name in the House of Commons.
2: Alice Morrow, Rachel Evans. Alison McKenzie, Jeanette Dunbervand, Barbara Haywood...
0: Portland. The Femicide Census says that on average a woman is killed by a man every three days. But the frightening thing is these are just the deaths we know about. And we know about them because they've been investigated by police and they've been classed as homicides, either murder or manslaughter. As one expert criminologist, Professor Jane Moncton-Smith, told me, when you count hidden homicides, the number could be much higher. Double the number of killings we know about, she suggests, is possible. In 2018, the Femicide Census counted 91 women had been killed by a current or former intimate partner. Double that, and you're at 182. One woman killed every other day for a year. But we don't know the actual total of domestic abuse deaths because, as you'll hear, not all of them are classed as manslaughter or murder. And that, to me, seemed just intolerable. How could we not know this? How is it not being counted by the police, by the the Home Office, by anyone? And over months of investigating, a clearer picture has emerged of what's going wrong. And I've got closer to finding out the number that no one seems to know. In this series, you'll hear about what happened to Katie Wilding and to her mum, Julie, and you'll hear about other victims and other remarkable parents who have fought and who are fighting now for justice.
3: Why did the police cover it up? We cannot understand why the police covered up. What was so important about Robert Tree that they had to cover up for him? We are actually allowing very dangerous people to get away with murder and that empowers them. They think they're bulletproof and they, you know, they might go and do it again. I know it's important, but dear God, this is a life we're talking about. And they didn't request anything for Sarah.
1: <laughs> Nothing.
2: Whatever happened that morning, I can't prove what happened that morning, and because of what happened to Emily's body, I'll never be able to prove what happened that morning.
0: So join me. This is a national scandal hidden from view, and we're going to try to bring it into the open.
3: Well, I joined the police service when I was 18 and a half, very young. And it was a baptism of fire. And it was certainly, I tell you what it really was, was a a brutal education in sexual politics. This is Professor
0: Jane Monckton-Smith. She's a former police officer turned independent investigator and a forensic criminologist. For years, Jane worked the beat as a patrol officer. She was often one of the first people on the scene of a crime and she saw close up how the police were getting things very wrong, particularly when it came to female victims. During my time as
3: a police officer, I I became very aware of how we justify violence and it it really concerned me. I didn't like it because... There just seemed to be so many justifications and excuses for violence that were part part of our criminal justice system that were so discriminatory and actually put women especially at a huge amount of risk because all of these defences, if you like, are sitting there, boxed, ready to go. You can almost go to the shelf and say, right, we're going to use the... um, Yeah, she was wearing a short skirt one. Bang, there on the table. There it is. And everybody just goes along with it. And that really, really concerned me. And that never went away either.
0: Jane realised that the police just weren't set up properly to prevent or prosecute domestic abuse. They didn't understand it very well. And they didn't understand the victims either. They were missing warning signs, red flags. And they had a very particular idea... The wrong idea, really, of what a victim should be like.
3: I remember the very first domestic abuse call I went to, and I went out with my sergeant on this day. The paramedics were there before us, and the perpetrator had fled the scene. So the only person there was the victim, and she was about 16, 17. So she's, she's sitting in a chair. There's like bit of blood coming down the back of her neck and she's just sitting there in total silence and these two paramedics are saying come and get in the ambulance come and let us take you to hospital because she'd been hit in the head with a lump hammer it's not even that she said no she just didn't say anything she just sat there and refused to engage with any of us so you know there was no way she was going to engage with us as police officers because we would have been saying things like well, you're going to make a statement and you're going to, let's arrest him, you know, all, all of this stuff that would actually probably make the situation worse. So we left after a while, all of us. And, you know, as we were walking out, I said to my sergeant, and he was lovely, such a kind man. So, you know, I said, what's going on? Why won't she, why won't she get in the ambulance? I don't understand. And he said, well, get used to it, Jane. It's what they're like.
0: After a few years, Jane left the police. She had children, and then she went to university and trained in forensic criminology. Now, she not only specialises in why people kill, she does deep dives into individual case files, trying to understand where we're going wrong in policing domestic abuse. She spends hours on the phone to families of victims, to police and to coroners and prosecutors persuading them to look again at cases where something crucial might have been missed. She knows more about this problem than anyone, and so after I saw her tweets last year and got in touch with her about hidden homicides, it was she who first told me about Katie Wilding, and then last summer she introduced me to Katie's mum, Julie. Julie is a formidable woman. She's strong, energetic... She's devastated, she's funny as hell, and my God, she's determined. Her story, Katie's story, is where my own sprawling journey into this world really began. After Jane put me in touch, I had a long, long chat with Julie on the phone. It took quite a few cups of tea to get through it, and then I drove south to meet her in her hometown on the Devon coast in the cafe she's named after her daughter. Literally, it's called Our Katie's Tea and Coffee House. I was there for hours and it quickly became clear to me this was far more than just a story about a young woman in an abusive relationship. As I sat in her cafe, I looked through Julie's pink ring binder file with all its multiple tabs organising the documentation she'd gathered about her daughter's death. And going through that file, something suddenly struck me. There seemed to be a total disconnect between different police departments. On the one hand... The public protection team in Devon and Cornwall Police, which deals with domestic abuse, had really obviously understood the danger that Katie was in from her ex-boyfriend was genuine and required action, which they took. And yet the police officers attending the scene on the morning of Katie's death seemed oblivious to the many red flags. So I went back to see Julie again. I needed to know more from her about what exactly had happened to her daughter, what the police knew and when. Of course we did. Julie, lovely to see you. Thank you. Come I've just sanitised my hands and we've got masks and everything. Oh, oh my, my goodness, this is not what you expect. She does so ah, see modern. Oh thank you. <laughs> that. I should have expected. It. I arrive at her home, which is in a lovely terrace of pastel painted houses. Julie takes us through to a room at the back. There are pictures of her daughters, all four of them adorning the walls. The room we're in used to be Katie's bedroom, she tells us. Now it's a living room with doors out into the garden. And so she starts to tell me about Katie. Actually, it pours out of her. I think this might be really difficult. Can you tell me a bit about what Katie was like?
2: That's not difficult. <laughs> um, Katie is the youngest of my four children, and um, I say is because until we stop talking about her and until people stop remembering her with love, she still exists. She was the only blonde one with blue eyes. She was my absolute baby. The other girls will tell you she was spoilt. I slightly disagree. She, she, you know, they'll tell you she was the favorite. Um, Happy stories of Katie as a child. Silly, this is why the girls think she's spoiled. Silly things like whoever's birthday it was, Katie would have to blow the candles out as well and we let her. Um, you know, silly stories like that. Um, she was bright, she was bubbly, she was very shy as a child. We found out that she, had, she needed special glasses that had coloured tints. She wasn't long or short-sighted, but she had those and then she started to come out of a shell. Julie plays a home video for us. You took these all over. Right, so Cree's in her pyjamas. Here. Keep the rhythm, keep the
0: rhythm. (laughs) It's Katie, age 10, and she's playing the drums at her end of primary school leaving concert. She's at the back, she's tucked away, but the camera finds her, settles on her, and you can see that she's really craning to find her mum in the crowd. Then suddenly, this little girl sees her mum and she breaks into a gigantic smile. It's just like the sun coming out.
2: At the age of 13, um, she got her first job as a paper round. And again, the others will tell you that, yeah, OK, most of the time I drove her around the paper round because she would be running late. Um, <laughs> but that's what we mums do. But she she stuck that out for 18 months. Um, in actual- You can tell Julie means what she says. It isn't difficult for her to
0: talk about Katie. Julie digs us out some more old home videos, and one stands out. It, it's a CD, actually, an 11th birthday present, which Julie gave to her daughter. So
2: did you go to the studio for it? Did you? Did she
0: like singing? it. Oh. She bought her some time in a professional recording studio. Here's Katie singing Lily Allen's song, Smile. It's difficult to listen to now. The lyrics describe an ex who makes Lily Allen's life miserable and it darkly parallels what happened later in Katie's life. Katie, Julie tells me, met Mitchell Richardson just a few weeks after she got home from Australia. She'd started back working at the hairdressers and he came up to introduce himself. He'd been watching her all week, he said. Katie, she was just 19, was swept off her feet. But
2: Julie wasn't that sure. Something just felt off to her. He tried too hard. He tried, he was desperately trying to sell himself to us. Um, by the time we met him, we knew that he was 31 and that Katie was, she was only 19 she told he'd already moved in. He moved in after three weeks, um, giving her some tale that he was being evicted. Could he just come and stay? You know, until it was he was sorted. It wasn't a permanent thing, just to come and stay. Um, we we knew by the time we met him that he'd had a he'd got a tag on his foot for for violence. He'd he'd been he he told Katie that he'd had a phone call from his ex girlfriend to come and help. Somebody was trying to break in. So the story he gave Katie was that he went round to the flat. um, There was a man there, and it was self-defense. He was trying to get the man out. Um, There was a fight, a scuffle, but he said nobody had listened. He got arrested, the judge didn't listen, and they'd given him a tag. The reality to that was he'd gone round to try and win his girlfriend back, found a man there, there was a fight, Uh, He knocked the man out and continued to beat him after he was knocked out. So not quite the act of self-defence. And we knew this when we met him. Did I like him or dislike him? I don't know, because I didn't feel at that point we'd met the real person. He was just obviously playing a role. When did you first become aware that he was abusing her in some way? Okay, very early on, um, I'd say within the first two months... Um, I had a phone call from my, my friend whose salon it was that Katie worked. She'd gone into work and it was probably about mid-morning. And um, my friend Debbie said that she used to come in in tears sometimes or, or very quiet. And Katie was very bouncy. But this one day she'd gone to work and he had come in. And there was a barber's side and a hairdressing side. Katie was doing a lady's hair and he came in very angry So he called Katie over, she went to see him, and he was towering over her, which he did, but he had his finger in her face, saying, he was shouting and very abusive at her. And it got to the point that two men on the barber's side got up to say, get out, you know, leave her alone. He spat in her face, and Katie was crying, and he threw a set of keys at her, which caught her face, and left. And Katie was so embarrassed and absolutely devastated, but immediately started to say it was her fault because she'd got up, she'd had all of the milk, and there was no milk for his coffee. And apparently, that's what had caused it. But she couldn't see that in no way was that any excuse for that kind of behaviour. And that set the alarm bells off.
0: Julie and her husband, Katie's dad, though he's not her biological father, soon found out that Mitchell Richardson was an alcoholic. They also found out that he was dealing and taking lots of drugs. As time went on, Julie kind of half-heard about more and more worrying incidents. Then Katie was signed off work with anxiety and depression. But the saving grace for Julie at that time was that she was still in contact with her daughter. She was still
2: able to see her. I felt we had to be civil to the man because... For some reason, Katie was allowed to come to me. She she lost her friends because she wasn't allowed to see them. She didn't go to work because she was signed off with anxiety and depression. So the only person she could escape to was me. So I felt that we had to be civil. It was the most difficult thing, knowing that he was hurting her. Um, but I felt if we weren't civil or if we put him down too often we'd lose her completely, which now sounds very difficult because we have lost her completely. Anyone who's got experience of
0: watching a domestically abusive relationship is going to recognise this kind of behaviour. Abuse doesn't have to be violent at all. Controlling and coercive behaviour is now a crime and there were nearly 18,000 offences of coercive control recorded by police in 2019 and that was twice as many as the year before. So by now, alarm bells were ringing for Julie, but Katie was sticking with her boyfriend. And then for a while, things seemed steadier. Not great, but steadier. It was after they'd been together for around 18 months that things really began to deteriorate. Katie
2: was turning up for help from her mum and dad more and more often. It started in the, in the, in, through the summer of 2016 Katie would often phone or text, usually phone late at night and say, he's escalating. He's drunk. Um, he's taking drugs. I need to get away. I need to let him calm down. And she'd come and stay, um, generally in her pajamas. Um, and she had to FaceTime him all night, um, just to prove that she was here. She wasn't out with anybody. And he would let her come in her pajamas so that he knew that she was coming. Well, assume she was coming here. Um, we started to keep a secret suitcase so that she would have clothes in there, um, underwear, makeup.
0: His behaviour was increasingly controlling and it was getting frightening. Again, it's really important to make clear so much of this behaviour is textbook abuse. I've come across these signs time and time again in my reporting. Intense jealousy, demanding money, vicious verbal abuse, getting threats, physical assaults. It's all a massive red flag for domestic homicide. And the thing is, this is common. 1.6 million women aged 16 to 74 experienced domestic abuse in the year between 2018 and 2019. But that's only the cases that were registered as crimes. we know that only 18% of women who experience domestic abuse ever report it to police. The problem is so much bigger than we know.
2: Then in October, it was the 8th of October, Katie again phoned to say, could she come? And it was it was probably about 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, and I was in bed. Andy was downstairs, I was in bed. And I said, yeah, I'll... Go and open the front door for you. How long are you going to be? And she said, well, I'm on my way. So I got up, went to the front door, unlocked it, sat in here with Andy for a bit and it got to midnight. So I phoned her and said, where are you? And she said, oh, it's settling down. He's okay. Uh, I probably won't come. And I'm like, please come. Just just come. No, 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 no. He's, he's all right. He'll go to sleep in a minute. He'll be all right. He'll go to sleep. Earlier on in the evening, Katie had phoned me and said, um, I need to leave him. Can you help me?
0: And so you knew that she was planning to leave him? Definitely,
2: yes. That was her intent? That was her intent because she had no control of money. She had no money. So she asked if I would be able to help her with a deposit, a rent and and just to get her in. So I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled.
0: Unfortunately, what's often seen as a moment of freedom is actually the most dangerous time in an abusive relationship when a woman decides to leave a controlling man. It can be a serious escalation point and that's something Jane Monkton-Smith, the forensic criminologist, is very clear on.
3: If somebody's been in this controlling relationship, they are controlled, they they can't escape, that could go on for 50 years but this person decides, "I I don't know if I'm leaving. That's the biggest trigger. That's the biggest trigger for homicide of all of them. But Julie, of
0: course, didn't know this. Why would she? She was just thrilled and excited
2: for Katie. Her daughter was finally free. And she said, "Would you come and view it with me?" So of course, what whatever we can do, this is amazing. So it was later that same night on the Saturday, and it was very late at night. Um, Katie phoned and said, "You know, can I come and stay?" He's gone absolutely mad, Mom, I'm coming. So I'm back downstairs, I'm pacing, waiting for it to come. Um, and it was about an hour later that we had a phone call from uh, Katie to say that she was downstairs, in the because the landlord lived on site. She was in the landlord's flat. Um, there were three or four policemen upstairs trying to arrest Mitchell. Um, and I could hear the noise. I could hear him. I could hear the police. I could hear it was very loud kicking off and he was on the floor downstairs. Mitchell was upstairs. Casey was in tears. He's hit me. He's hit me. Um, I spoke to the police and they said they thought that Casey's nose and jaw were broken. Um, They were trying to persuade her to go to the hospital, but all she wanted was to come here. So eventually they brought her here. It was about three in the morning. This was an important moment. It's important because
0: it was the first time the police were called. The first time police knew Mitchell
2: Richardson was a danger to Katie. He drank most of a bottle of Jack Daniels. Um, He took, I think it was 20 Valium in front of her. Um, And he started to beat her. Um, The neighbours called the police underneath and said that yes, they'd heard him hitting before, but this time they were frightened for her life. Um, So the police were called anyway, they arrived. One of them grabbed Katie literally and took her downstairs to the landlord's flat. It took three of them with pepper spray. He didn't apparently react to the pepper spray because he was so high, Um, but they arrested him. They took him to the police station, brought Katie here. So that's when we found out that Katie had a tracker on her phone. He didn't, he'd bought her a phone and installed a tracker device. And she was adamant
0: that it was to protect her. Even then, Katie refused to press charges against her ex-boyfriend. So he went free. But the threats? They just grew. I asked Julie to tell me exactly what Mitchell Richardson had said to her, how he'd threatened her. And just a warning, it's extremely graphic and involves threats of rape.
2: The worst one was um, he asked Katie to ask me for uh, £300. Um, and he said to Katie, this is a week later, uh, he said to Katie, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, um, kill you. I'm going to go and find your mum. I'm going to rape her. And whilst I'm raping her, I'm going to tell her what I've done to you. And then I'm going to go away. And with that 300 pounds, I'm going to buy enough drugs to kill myself. And won't it be funny that it's your mum's money that killed us all? Uh, that was the worst one. um. Generally, it was just to come and, and, and attack me, hit me, beat me because I think I was Katie he knew that I was Katie's vulnerable point,
0: yeah
2: yeah
0: um, well let's go back to that
2: that week where she's in her flat,
0: yes, and but it wasn't long before he managed to persuade her to see him again
2: yeah when when Katie turned her phone off on that on the Monday, he started to phone me in the afternoon. Um, And I wrote everything down because he was breaking his bail conditions. And in one way, I was quite pleased that he'd phoned me because I thought this is it. He'll get taken back into custody. We'll have a chance to to keep her safe. So I wrote everything down that he said. It was about a 45 minute conversation. Um, And he was determined that I should tell him where Katie was. Obviously, I'm not going to. He was determined that I was going to go and smash Katie's phone up. It uh, wouldn't tell me why, except that if he didn't, something bad was on it. And if I didn't smash his phone up, her phone up, then something would ha- bad would happen to Katie. When I asked, what did he mean? He said, well, the police will be involved. So that that was on the Monday. I reported it on the, uh, on the Monday afternoon to the police and all of the threats that he'd made to Katie. And um, the police told me that um, the team that were dealing with Katie went on for two days, they were on rest days, but they put a note on the file so that when they came back in on Wednesday, something would happen. This was only a couple of days after that first call to the police. Whoever took Julie's call
0: told her they would put a note on the file so it could be dealt with when the team came back on Wednesday. Wednesday? It was Monday. That was a mistake. A big one. Given what he'd just done to Katie... Mitchell Richardson's threats to kill should have been taken seriously straight away. It seems pretty obvious to me. Surely it should have been obvious to anyone. I just accepted it.
2: I was brought up to believe the police are are to be respected and believed and that they know what they're doing and that they always do the right thing. It never entered my mind that that was a wrong thing they told me i I just accepted it okay that's I'll, i'll speak to them on wednesday then um i believed katie was safe we knew he didn't know where she was katie had blocked his number so we just accepted it now looking back hindsight again isn't it
0: mitchell richardson had broken his conditional bail and julie was hoping he'd be taken into custody she was hoping that her daughter might finally be safe but a couple of days later Katie went off the grid Julie couldn't get hold of her she sent messages there was no reply things had been bad but they'd
2: never been like this I couldn't get hold of Katie all morning so I got to the point that I thought I'll phone will phone Mitchell and his phone was also switched off and I started to get a bit panicky so I went round to the flat there was nobody there at Katie's flat so I'm now panicking her car was gone um So I got to the police station and told them that I couldn't get hold of them, and they really, really started to get worried now. They took it very seriously, and they sent another team. Actually, the guy that was going to interview me, because he knew what Mitchell looked like, they sent him out to look as well. And I was at the police station for a good two or three hours giving a statement, and they were coming back in all of the time to update us, and they got me to send Katie some text messages. And while I was there, a text message came back from Katie. It was like, oh, it's Katie. Oh, it's Katie. But it wasn't Katie. You could tell. It wasn't her style of writing. There were no kisses. I've been leaving frantic messages all morning and all it said was, um, I'm okay. What's the problem? So the police actually said, that's Mitchell. We believe that to be Mitchell. So we, we kept trying and the phone was switched off after that. They were missing for two days. Couldn't find them for two days. We were all looking. The police were out looking. They had the, um, the, the Car registration, is it ANPR, that was all out. Everyone was checking CCTV, they were out. So they were taking it very seriously. Very seriously.
0: They knew she was at risk.
2: Yes. Well, at this time, um, she was also involved with the MARAC, which is the multi-agencies, um, and they had stated that she was um, at high risk. Just to be clear, what Julie's describing is a
0: MARAC, a multi-agency risk assessment conference. Only the highest risk domestic abuse victims get referred to
2: these. So Friday morning, um, it was early for Katie, (laughs) it's about 7.30 in the morning, we were just getting ready for work or to go out and my phone rings and it's Katie's phone again and it just said, can you please pay £200 uh, into my bank account, I'll pay you back later when I get paid. No kisses, no nothing. And again, it's like that's not Katie and if it is Katie, That's something's wrong, obviously, but she's trying
0: to tell me something. So Andy, Katie's dad, decided he'd go and search for her himself.
2: So Andy drove to Mitchell's flat in Payton, where they both lived, no, no cars. He drove to Katie's flat in Torquay and Mitchell's car was parked outside. So he did absolutely the right thing and he phoned me to phone the police. He said, I'm going to go because if I stay here, I'm going to go up into the flat and it will end nastily. He said, so I'm going to go, tell me when the police are on the way. So he waited for the police to arrive, but he left. And I'm so proud of him for that. Sounds a bit weird, but I'm so proud. The police, um, as I say, it's an intercom. So they managed to try and get somebody to let them in. And they raced up the three flights of stairs and Katie said to me after when she heard those footsteps coming up the stairs, she realised it was the police because there was a lot of them coming. And she realised that there was a chance she would live to see me again. It was she knew how bad it was. He'd basically had her for 36 hours. He'd, he'd sent her a message in the middle of the night. So he was cold. He was tired. He couldn't go home because the police were looking for him. He knew that. Um if he promised to behave, he loved her, he'd do anything for her, could she let him in for a cup of tea and they'd talk, but he promised to behave and be, you know, be good. So in her 21-year-old wisdom, she gave him the address and he'd been there for about 36 hours. The minute he walked in the flat, he started beating her. When they arrested him, they phoned me and said, Julie, come now. She's she's in a way, she's in a bad state, come now. And that policeman that was with her when I got there said, I genuinely believe if we hadn't got here when we did, she'd be dead.
0: Mitchell Richardson was arrested and taken into police custody. And this time, Katie did agree to give a statement. The police asked if it could be recorded on video. Julie's allowed us to play some of this video. It's a difficult listen, but it's important that you hear it. It gives a clear indication of what the police knew and the extent of the abuse that Katie was suffering. It provides clear evidence of how high her level of risk was. By this point, Mitchell Richardson had been arrested and he was about to be questioned. He'd broken his bail conditions when he'd contacted Katie and Julie and he'd threatened to kill them both. He'd kept Katie hostage for hours while he'd assaulted her, all within the space of one week. Katie knew how bad it was now and she was ready to talk. So here they are. These are the words of Katie Wilding on the 14th of October
1: 2016.
4: Tell me who Mitch is. Mitch is? Well, I've been him for just over a year and a half. For just over a year and a half? Okay. Um, he's got the most genuine heart ever, and I love it. I'll get emotional.
1: Don't worry. <laughs> Take
4: your time, don't worry. Um, and then last night, he went on a night out, he called me saying that he had nowhere to stay because obviously the police were looking for him. Um, he said that he, obviously he was cold in this car because so, like, obviously he didn't, know, he, he, he didn't know where I lived because obviously I moved out at this point. Okay. They said that he was really cold and I felt I felt sorry for him, so I said to come come, come back to mine in the end. I um, admit that bit we both had a bit of cocaine. I admit that completely. Yeah. Um anyway, so he came back to mine. and I was I was ready for bed because I was obviously got work I went to have work today. Um he came back, went straight on my phone straight away. He accused me of loads of things, and um, one of them being Stephen Woods, one of his best friends, came around because he messaged me or something saying, Are, are you with him? Um, so it of escalated from that. They um, yeah, basically, just, we would give him my phone back, basically, okay. um, which is what he, he always does. He, he always takes the phone off me when he's high. Uh, So yeah, basically, I, I, I basically said to him, i got got to about half five in the morning. and I said, look, Mitch, you've got you have two options: you can stop what you're doing and, and just calm down, or get out, basically. And he said, I'm not going anywhere. And I said, like, this is my flat; you need to get out, basically, now. And obviously, nothing happened. And um, it obviously escalated. Um, he was spitting on my floor. He was spitting on me. Um, he just basically, he broke my remote in half. Um, fully furnished flats and he was threatening to smash it up basically. And I was like, please don't, you know, it's my new flat is fully furnished. Um, anyway, um, then he said, just call the police. And I was like, okay. So yeah, he gave him my phone. And then he said, go do it. So I was about to do it. And he said, well, let, let's just see how long it'll take to get here. He said, in the time we get here, I I would have killed you. Tell me
1: what so, um, you know, he said that he was um, threatening to smash the place up and everything, was that, yeah. to do the money? Yeah, he yeah. said he wanted, to, he, was to, he wanted to kill someone. OK. And and so tell me what you mean about the threats to kill. Well, he said that, well, basically, I said to him, I'll
4: go, to, I'll go for it for the police in a minute, but he had my phone at the time, so I had no way of doing it. And then he actually passed me my phone. I said, go on, call the police then. And I was like, okay, so I, I, I was about to do it, and he was like, well, let, let's see how fast he can get here, because the time we get here, I'll, I'll, I'll kill you. And he said, whoever comes through the door, I'll, I'll do the same for them, with a the knife.
1: What did you think he was going to do? I,
4: I Well, I I thought he was going to do it. Right. I really yeah. <laughs> he did. Like, that, that that angry look he has in his face, I mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. that
1: he could do it, mm-hmm. possibly. Okay. So you went to phone the police and then you didn't? Yeah. And then you texted your mum? to try to get the money. Yeah. When did the incidents of, of you being strangled, uh, when did they happen? Is uh, well, It, it strangled
4: me in Egypt as well the same night. Right. Because um, I, I actually remember it perfectly. Because um, I mean, I, I ran to reception and asked could of another room. Um, the, all, everyone in Egypt, one we in the hotels was my black Line, And it was horrible. To have, to walk around on me, you know, having to lie about why I've had it. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, the day we came back, it covered up. It's it, it, mm-hmm. like I could cover it with makeup because so I, could, I couldn't even cover it with makeup, it was so bad. But he did, did punch me, mm-hmm. he just hit me so hard in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, How many times did he hit you? I don't know. I I him he'd hit me and then he step back and then he'd hit me again to teach me a lesson. That, that's what he always says to teach me a lesson.
1: What does he mean by
4: that? I don't know. Okay. Um, and the other occasion when he strangled you, um, that was that was the time where I just said I um, he thought he found something and he wanted answers, and that was the only way that he thought right. he was getting it out of me.
1: Yeah.
4: And I still didn't say anything because so I, I, I had nothing to to say. Yeah. So if well, he was either going to strangle me and kill me, but I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm.
0: Katie should have been safe from that point. The police knew she was in grave danger. She had told them clearly and bravely. But a month later, her mum would receive a knock on the door. A knock that changed everything. you'd like to read more about katie wilding's case and about our investigation into hidden homicides you can go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash hidden homicides to find out more in the next episode julie fights the police to get a proper investigation into her daughter's death and we investigate a new case of a murderer twice missed this series was reported by me, Louise Tickle, and produced by Matt Russell, with additional reporting by Claudia Williams and Patricia Clark. The editor was Basha Cummings, with original music by Tom Kinsella. If you've been affected by anything in this podcast, please head to the website for the charity Advocacy After Fatal Domestic Abuse. The address is www.after.org.uk.